probably can't see it from where you're sitting, but out of the corner of my eye, I kept catching. Uh, here in a few minutes, we're going to be kind of having an experimental uh, children's Bible class out under the breezeway between the buildings where the kids can let the wind just blow their germs away. Uh, so that'll be fun. That's going on out there. And uh, as you leave, if you see a bunch of kids in that area and you don't want to be around them, I don't blame you. Just walk around, find a different door. But it's a blessing that our church family continues to be family during these unusual times. And one of the things that becomes very important, uh, so many different things that are wrong with the world. Uh, when you go through a difficult season like this, the volume seems to be turned up on the problems. Uh, the volume seems to be turned up and amplifies that which we already kind of knew was wrong, but it can become a lot more clear when we're during, going through uncertain times like this. Uh, and one of the things that's come up a couple of times as we've been listening to the congregation and talking to people and as we've been living life together is that some people are just lonely. They're just lonely. And the reality is uh, that friendship is a spiritual blessing. It's not just relational, it's not just fun, it's not just, just friendship, it's a gift from God, and, and it's intended to have spiritual implications. I was blown away, as, as last night as I was looking over my sermon uh, and kind of thinking about it, I felt that there was one kind of glaring deficiency uh, in my notes, uh, that when I get to the part about the transfiguration, I thought, man, I wish I could spend a few minutes here just talking about the transfiguration of this moment that Peter, that Peter, James, and John spend with Jesus. And I went over my notes and I went, I really just don't have the time to do it. Well, there we are. So as I was sitting here, I thought, boy, it's a bummer that the people in the second service only get half my sermon because uh, that's what my sermon was missing. And I had never before thought about how in all the times that the Gospels talk about how you've heard the law and the prophets say this, but I say, and here Jesus sits with the man who wrote the law and the one who is the most iconic of the prophets. And God says, listen to this one, this son of mine. Um, I just want to sit a minute in your sermon, Dennis, and not do mine. But nonetheless, uh, friendships are a special spiritual blessing. And, and we have a difficult time understanding that in the world today because we've bought into this idea that Christianity is about a personal relationship with you and Jesus. And so we say things like, well, that's just between you and God. Well, guess what? There's nothing in your life that's actually just between you and God because God has intended to show you into the fabric of the entire body of believers. You're a stone in the temple. You're a part of a family. You are a member of the body. And all of these images and all of these descriptions that God gives about the kingdom of God are never personal. He talks about the bride of Christ, and it's singular when he talks about bride, but who he's talking about is the entire church community of believers. You're part of that and so we really need to grasp onto this idea that Christianity is always a team sport. That Christianity is always about relationships. And if you zoom all the way out and you look at Christianity, what you're going to see is that the kingdom of God is the sum total of all those who are in Jesus. That all of those who have been baptized into Christ and raised out of the waters of baptism into his resurrection and new life are part of this kingdom. And you can adjust the focus and zoom in a little bit more. 
And suddenly it's not just the kingdom of God. What you see is all these little communities that are part of the kingdom. What the New Testament in Greek called ecclesias, uh, congregations, churches. Uh, when we think about it, we think about the family that meets at Northwest. And, and you see how God has given us so many different spiritual gifts that we can come together and work together and serve together and do kingdom things in the neighborhood that our building is in, but the neighborhood that each one of our people is in. That's the stretch and the extent of the work of Northwest. But then you zoom in a little bit more, right? And you see that the kingdom isn't just a bunch of congregations, but that every one of these congregations has ministries and Bible classes and life groups. And it starts to look like these groups of about 10 to 20, sometimes 30 in larger groups. And, and, and you kind of think, boy, that looks a lot like this group Jesus traveled with. The apostles and the disciples, these men and women that were part of his community, uh, that would travel with him to all kinds of different places, learning from him, funding him, participating with him in the ministry that he was doing all over Judea and Galilee and Israel and to anywhere that he went. He took this group and they're learning and growing together, this small group of Jesus followers. Churches are filled with those small groups, people that are doing life together and learning from one another and blessing one another, discipling one another. And a lot of times when we talk about Jesus and his ministry, that's where we stop zooming in. But if you zoom in just a little bit more, what you're going to see is on a number of occasions, just a handful really, but it's a handful of occasions that give you the idea that behind these three, four, five moments, in fact, exists a much larger pattern of special relationships between Jesus and Peter and James and John. Peter and James and John. first time that Jesus calls them apart in the text is when he's going into the, the room of Jairus' daughter to bring her back to life. And he says, Peter, James, and John, come in here with me. And, and you kind of wonder uh, at that moment, because you haven't seen this pattern developing yet, maybe that's just the random three that would fit in the room, or the three that when he turned around were at the front of the line, or the three that have some special um, connection to what's going to be happening. But then again, later at the transfiguration, Jesus says, Peter, James, and John, why don't you come? with me. These sons of Zebedee and this Peter, a fisherman, and he calls them and he says, come with me. I want to go up on this mountain. And he takes them up there. And there's these occasions that start to happen and these patterns that start to develop. And one of the things that I want us to look, look at as we go into a number of these texts where Jesus is spending special time in his friendship and his relationship and in his leadership of Peter, James, and John uh, is notice that we often think about Jesus pouring into his apostles, pouring out of himself and into the disciples. That when a crowd gathers around him, that he has something to offer the crowd. But I want you to look at these stories that we're going to be reading today and realize that in these moments of deep intimacy, of deep vulnerability, of times where Jesus is having these moments with the Father, that in these moments, he tends to bring these three. And it appears that the relationship goes far beyond Jesus just discipling them and teaching them something in these moments. It appears to me that Jesus needed friends. 
that Jesus needed the relationships with these men to support him and be a blessing to him in his time of great need and of some of the more intense moments of his ministry and indeed of his life. We're going to begin in Luke 9, verse 28, the passage that was discussed uh, earlier in our communion. But it says here, uh, about eight days after Jesus said this, is Luke 9 and verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him. And he went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which, was about, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time, what they had seen. They didn't think it was ready for the masses, for everyone to know what it was. And it's almost hard to believe that, that after being present at this moment, after seeing Moses and Elijah visiting with Jesus about his coming departure, that you wouldn't run down this mountain and start looking for everyone you could find and tell them, you won't believe what I saw today. You won't believe what I now know. You won't believe what's coming for Jesus. You won't believe who, I, I, this is unbelievable. But there's something about this moment that is so deeply personal for the three that Luke tells us, yeah, they didn't even talk about it. They didn't even tell anyone about it. This was a, a, a private meeting between Jesus and three of his closest friends where his father came upon them in a cloud, where Moses and Elijah came to talk to him about his departure in Jerusalem, which has echoes, by the way, of the temptation where Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by what kind of king he's going to be, what kind of empire he's going to create, what kind of a, a, a ministry he's going to lead. And the temptation is to lead from the top, but the destination is for Jesus to be humble and a servant. And over and over again, in these moments where this comes to a head, Jesus asked Peter, James, and John, come spend some time with me while I wrestle with what's coming. And he invites them into this moment. John, who later goes on to write a gospel, does not record these events doesn't record Jesus' baptism, the other time that he was present and heard God say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Um, there's a couple of really detailed moments that John, I don't know why he didn't include this moment, but I wonder if it's not tied to how Luke seems to be describing it here, that there's something so deeply personal about this moment that they dare not even speak of it. And John never does, not in the writings we have at least. Jesus leans on these friends. 
You see a similar thing in Matthew 26, the next time that he calls this group of men to join him. Matthew chapter 26, and starting in verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. That's all the disciples, the big crowd that follows him everywhere he goes. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. There's a lot of times Jesus in the Gospels teaches. There's a lot of times he preaches. There's not many times that he exposes the difficult vulnerability of his emotional state like this. And he does it with these three friends. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here Jesus is again praying to God about the way that his departure, as it was referred to at the transfiguration, is about to take place. He knows that he's going to be arrested, put on trial, crucified. That he's going to go through unspeakable difficulties. He's already talked to Moses and Elijah about it. And he did so with his friends there. And now as he is in the absolute eve of this difficult time, he calls his his friends together again. And he says, this is so hard. I'm hurting so badly. And they're still struggling with sleepiness. It's It's an unusual thing for good friends to do in a moment like this. But it is the reality of Jesus's experience. And they fall asleep and he goes up to him and he says, just... Pray with me. Please don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Just lean into the spirit, not the flesh. I need you tonight. And you get the idea that Jesus is not teaching them in this moment. Jesus is not pouring into them in this moment. Jesus is telling them, I need you right now to pour into me. I need you. I'm telling you how much this is difficult for me. Later, on the cross itself, John chapter 19, verse 25, Jesus is hanging there on the cross. And near the cross of Jesus, as Jesus is hanging there in pain, and he knows that his death is near. As we read this, he's going to look down and he's going to see his own mother watching him suffer and watching him die. And when you're in a moment like that and you know that there's nothing that you can do to comfort the mother that you love so much, you need somebody. And look who Jesus turns to. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. 
And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus knows that he's not going to be able to be there to take care of his mother after this moment. And he knows that, that, that with the agony that that brings, that he is going to be, he's the oldest son, the one responsible for providing for her in her old age. And, and he would be leaving her as a widow without an older son to protect her. And he looks to the disciple who he loved, which is uh, also the one who is writing the book, and that I believe is John, this John of Peter, James, and John. And he looks to this beloved disciple and he says to him, take care of my mom. Mom, you can trust this guy. Let him treat you like a son, like a son would. Jesus wasn't a lone wolf. Jesus wasn't someone who spent his entire life in ministry all by himself, uh, occasionally going to teach the masses and then withdrawing to be alone and, and by himself. In fact, when he draws into his most important and emotional and difficult moments, he takes his good friends with him. Peter, James, and John. And the question that I think we have to ask is, if the Messiah, Son of God, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords understood that he couldn't do life by himself, that he needed friends to support him, then what makes us think today as Christians that we can do the Christian walk alone and by ourselves? That as long as I've got me and Jesus, I don't need anybody else. Well, Jesus needed somebody else. Jesus needed friends to lean on in his darkest hour and his toughest moment. And it's not to say that he's weak. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels, but he still needed friends to be there, to support him, to bear witness to his most personal moments, many of them with his father, to support him and pray for him in his times of greatest need and difficulty, to share his innermost struggles with. Jesus needed them. There's several great examples of these kinds of friendships throughout Scripture. I can't help but wonder if Jesus didn't know some of them. They were, after all, not only filling the pages of the Torah and the history books that he had grown up reading and studying and knowing so much about. Not only did he know them from those pages, but they were, many of them, part of his family line. So we read uh, the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and other places. What we see is that uh, there were great friendships in Jesus' ancestry. Friendships like David and Jonathan. Friendships uh, like Ruth and Naomi. One of the most beautiful examples of friendship in the Old Testament. And it comes, of course, from one of Jesus' great, 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 and so on grandmothers. I want you to hear this story. This is part of Jesus's family legacy that gets handed down to him. He's fortunate to have the stories of his family legacy recorded in scripture. It says in Ruth chapter 1 verse 8, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, this is after her sons had passed away and there was no way that she could provide them with, with future sons, so there would be no heirs and there was no hope. So Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home and may the Lord show you kindness if you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. 
Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more, any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. What a friendship. What an incredible, spiritual, God-infused friendship. I've never seen it done before, but as I read this today, it occurs to me that these would be incredible marriage vows. For the rest of my life, your God will be my God, your people my people. I will go where you go, where you die, I will die, where you're buried, I'll be buried, till death do us part. It's this special bond between the two of them. And what's interesting is the marriage that originally bound these two women together, uh, of Ruth to Naomi's son, has gone away. And she says, just go back to your people. And she says, my, your people are my people. Go back where you have hope. Where you have hope, I have hope. Go back to where there is potential for you. There is no potential for me, Ruth says, if I am not with you, I am bound to you for life. Your God is my God. And it becomes no longer a commitment that is held together by the marriage to a shared man. It is now a commitment that is held together by a commitment to one another and to God. And it's going to last forever. We need these kinds of friendships. God has built it into our, our very createdness that we have a need to be connected to people that will be there with us through all difficulties that life brings us. If the Son of God knew that He needed these kinds of spiritual friendships, spiritual friendships that the legacy of which echoed down through Scripture and through His family tree so that when Jesus was in His ministry that He didn't say, I need to focus more on my job. Being Messiah is a tough occupation after all. I don't have time for friends. He didn't say, I'm only going to be here for a while, and then I'm going to leave and go to prepare another place for you to get there. I really don't have time to invest in friendships. He didn't say, I'm the Son of God. I'm the one who will, has come to set the whole world to rights. I don't need anybody else as long as I've got me and God. Jesus knew he needed friends. And he pursued them. And he invited them into his life and into these personal moments. I know that we have people at this church who lack what Naomi and Jesus had. I know we've got people that have been here for decades who don't have a deep spiritual friendship. I know we have shut-ins who remember when they had friends who remembered them. 
I know that at this church we have people who think they aren't worthy of these kinds of friendships. I know that we have young adults at this church that are wondering if we see them and if they can find these relationships in this church. And often they're looking for them outside of their own age group. Will you see me? Will you know me? Will you care about me? Here's what you need to know. You need to know this today. If you think Christianity is a personal thing between you and God, you can still be saved. The cross is sufficient to forgive you for being wrong about that. But there's a better way. You need to know that as opportunities come up this year and next year and in the years to come, that if if you're part of this church and you don't have friends, we want to open doors for you to go through, give you opportunities to make it clear that it needs to happen and that it's accessible to happen and that you ought to do it. But I hope when those doors are open that you step through, that you are willing to be vulnerable and invite someone else in to your life to be the kind of spiritual friend that God desires for you to have can be a Christian alone, but even Jesus knew that he desired a better way. I hope you do too. Today, if you're listening to this sermon and you're thinking, not only do I not have that kind of a spiritual friendship with someone in the body of Jesus, I don't even have that kind of a relationship with Jesus. If that's what you need today, if your great need is to become Jesus' brother and sister, bound together for life and for eternity. The Bible tells you that all you've got to do is believe in Jesus and be baptized. He'll forgive your sins, wash them away, and you'll be in him, his sibling forever. And as long as that's true, you can never be alone. You can never be alone. And it begins to open doors to other types of relationships in the body of Jesus that can last forever. If you have that need, please come forward this morning as we stand and have an invitation song.